0: Hello listeners, as an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And, if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. And now I can also accept Zelle and Venmo. Just use my email address, spacerockethistory at gmail.com. Thanks.
1: Good morning. I'm ABC Science Editor Jules Bergman, and with me is ABC White House correspondent Tom Jarrell. Apollo 11 is now 14,000 miles out from Earth, speeding homeward at 11,000 miles an hour to end its epic eight-day lunar flight. It's headed toward a landing 950 miles southwest of Hawaii. The weather, good generally, but windy, up to 21 miles an hour, with seas running to six feet. Astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Mike Collins may be a bit uncomfortable in that rolling sea state while they're waiting for the helicopters to pick them up and take them to the prime recovery vessel. The aircraft carrier Hornet now standing by in the recovery area after having moved that recovery area and the ships 215 miles northwestward during the night to avoid thunderstorms
0: and high seas. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 229 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11... Re entry and splashdown.
2: Well, we're getting a call from Apollo 11 now. Let's uh, listen to that.
3: Uh, Roger. Good morning. What's the status on midcourse 7? Uh, Roger. We were going to let you sleep in until about 190 hours. Midcourse 7 is uh, not required.
2: Okay. Thank you. The crew gave us a call at 189 hours, 29 minutes. We advised them uh, of the cancellation of the midcourse.
0: Correction. When the morning of the ninth day of Apollo 11's mission rolled around, the astronauts were rapidly nearing the expansive oceanic beauty and the cloud-covered landmasses of the Earth, a truly welcome sight in contrast to the monochromatic moon they had left behind. The crew was ready for re-entry in more ways than one. They could almost feel the increased pull of gravity as they raced downhill toward the 40-mile-wide entry corridor, bracing themselves for the deceleration they wanted to feel. There were other, more basic reasons that they were ready as well. One was the odor. The astronauts smelled bad, and the command module was grubby. They grew tired of working in the smelly conditions. The right side of the lower equipment bay contained their old launch day urine bags, discarded washcloths, and worse. The drinking water was now laced with hydrogen bubbles, which was a consequence of fuel cell technology, which demonstrates that H2 and O join imperfectly together to form H2O. The bubbles produced gross flatulence in the lower bow, resulting in a not-so-subtle and pervasive aroma that reminded Mike Collins of a mixture of wet dog and marsh gas. There was also the indignity of having bowel movements in public. Things were fun a couple of days ago, like shaving and weightlessness, but now they were a nuisance. There was no sink to wash the hair or even enough water to rinse the face, Instead, the astronauts had to wipe their lathered face dry with tissues and then itch and scratch for a couple of hours to get rid of the last few whiskers. Even brushing their teeth was a bother. With no place to spit out the toothpaste, they had to swallow it instead. All of these things taken individually were small potatoes, but as a whole, they produced an overlay of irritation and impatience. It seemed degrading for Columbia after all she had done and how well she had worked to reach this smelly old man stage. Although they were ready for re-entry, there were so many interacting considerations in spaceflight that could not be hurried. Even the simplest tasks could become complicated in ways that a reasonable mission planner would never foresee. For example, a spacecraft alignment could not follow a urine dump. The tiny globs of urine shined like stars in the sunlight to disguise the real stars in the sextant. So they had to wait at least 10 minutes until the urine slowly dispersed before a platform alignment could be made. Outside Columbia, all seemed to be going well. The crescent Earth glistened larger and more inviting as each hour went by. Houston reported acceptable weather conditions in the landing area, namely scattered clouds at 2,000 feet, 18-knot winds, and waves 6 feet high. All three astronauts took an anti-motion sickness pill because they knew that the command module wallows disastrously on the water And there was no point in throwing up if it could be avoided. At about 192 hours, mission elapsed time, Houston realized that Mike Collins had limited training to fly the extra range procedure required to skip over the stormy area to where the Hornet was now waiting for them. So Houston read Collins the procedures as a refresher.
3: About the, uh, constant drag level. Okay, Mike. Uh, of course, this is uh, in the event uh, GNN and the EMS uh, quits, and you have to fly the uh, constant G. And uh, what we're trying to do is to extend the constant G range uh, from 1100 to uh, 1500 miles. We've uh, run this procedure in the simulator, and uh, it works fine. But basically, I'll go through it. Uh, Just go through it and then if you have any questions uh, come back. But uh, it's the same uh, lift vector up until max G and then uh, lift vector down uh, and then modulate the uh, lift vector until uh, G dot goes to zero. Okay, this procedure is essentially the same uh, so far. And then hold G dot zero, until you pass the retro elapsed time of V circular. And then, after you pass this uh, retro elapsed time of V circular, roll to a gimbal angle of 45 degrees and then hold this constant bank angle of, of uh, 45 degrees until you come to the retro elapsed uh, time of drogues. Over.
0: confirmed the procedures, but still believed that if he had to fly it, the capsule would wind up nowhere near the Hornet. Still, it was very likely he would not have to fly it manually. The computer on Columbia had worked flawlessly for the entire mission. In fact, the crew trusted their spacecraft to the extent that they left their pressure suits packed away under their couches so they would enter the atmosphere in their short sleeves. Now Buzz began reciting the lengthy checklist for the re-entry timeline. The astronauts had enough time to go through the list three times, and they did. For as the journey drew to a close, the consequence of a screw-up loomed as large as life, literally. This entry timeline is my kind of timeline, nice and slow. At about 193 hours mission elapsed time, Jim Lovell, from the backup crew, once again took over CAPCOM.
2: And the Apollo 11 backup crew has joined CAPCOM, Ron Evans, at his console. Jim Lovell, Bill Anders, and Fred Hayes.
3: Apollo 11, Houston. Go ahead, Ron. This is Jim, Mike. Uh, Backup crew is still standing by, and just want to remind you that the most difficult part of your mission is going to be after recovery. Well, we're looking for a doll
0: Please don't sneeze. Yeah, keep the mice healthy. Jim Lovell was teasing Collins about the three weeks he would have to spend in quarantine after recovery. The mice, Collins mentioned, would be used to test the toxicity of the lunar soil samples. For the first time in two flights, Collins found himself in the wonderful situation of having plenty of of maneuvering fuel. For the whole flight he had been hoarding it. But now, there was no reason to do that. Now, he made his maneuvers crisp with total disregard for the extra fuel being used. Houston responded to Collins' good mood by radioing, Have a good trip and remember to come in B.E.F. B.E.F. means blunt end forward in other words, heat shield forward, which was the only way to come in without burning up. Just like Jiminy, they would be looking behind them as they put their blunt heat shield forward, allowing it to absorb the tremendous friction heat of the atmosphere by a process of controlled erosion called ablation. The goal was to hit the atmosphere at a 6.5 degree angle. Apollo 11 was now projected to hit the entry corridor at 6.48 degrees, just two one-hundredths of a degree shallower than a perfect trajectory. Entry velocity would be 36,194 feet per second. In contrast, Gemini's velocity was about 25,000 feet per second. Apollo 11's computer was set to steer to 169 degrees west longitude and 13 degrees north latitude, which was empty sea about 80 miles southwest of the Hawaiian Islands. The crew and everyone else knew that if they contacted the Earth's atmosphere too steeply, the G-forces would be too high and their heat shield would be ineffective, and the intense heat of reentry would be fatal. If they came in too shallow, they would skip out and be deflected by the atmosphere, shooting off into space where their fuel and other consumables would run out long before they could return. If this did occur, NASA was prepared to discontinue the live TV feed to the public. Before they landed, there was just one major chore left to perform, namely, jettisoning the faithful service module. Collins remarked as it departed, it's been a champ.
3: Apollo 11, Houston, we see you getting ready for SEP. Uh, everything looks mighty fine down here. Same here, Ryan, right, Hi, uh, Houston, we got the service module uh, calling by. Uh, a little high and a little bit to the right. Oh, roger, thank you. And it's rotating just like it should be. Thrusters are firing. Uh, good, it's got a lot of gas there to burn out too. Coming across now from right to left.
0: At launch, Apollo 11 weighed 6 million pounds. Now, all that was left of Columbia weighed in at a mere 11,000 pounds. The first and second stages of the Saturn, which fell into the sea, accounted for most of the weight. Then there was the empty third stage of the Saturn, now in orbit around the Sun and the Lunar Module Descent Stage at Tranquility Base, the Ascent Stage of the Eagle Abandoned in Lunar Orbit, and the Service Module, which was about to burn up due to entering the atmosphere without a heat shield, and finally, the Command Module, protecting the most important part of Apollo 11, the three astronauts.
3: Apollo 11, Houston, uh, with a little uh, recovery force information, over. Go ahead. Uh, Roger, the uh, Hornet is uh, on station, uh, just far enough off the target point to uh, keep from getting hit. Uh, Recovery 1 are the uh, choppers there, they're on station. And uh, Hawaii Rescue 1 and 2, the uh, C-130s are uh, within uh, 40 minutes of your uh, target point. Over. 11 Houston, we'll have you for about 3-4 minutes through Redstone and then pick you up after blackout through Orion. Roger. 11 Houston, you're going over the hill there shortly. You're looking mighty fine to us.
2: See you later. We're at entry time. Blackout very shortly. Range to go to splash, 1,533. There's blackout.
0: With the service module gone, Columbia flew like a fighter now reacting vigorously to Collins' right-hand controller. He maneuvered the command module to the blunt end forward position. All three of the astronauts were very quiet now, as they lay in their couches listening to the whir of the machinery. Barely perceptible at first, the deceleration was heralded by a panel light which came on at .05G and then by the beginnings of a spectacular visual display out the window. The crew was in the center of the sheath of protoplasm, trailing a comet's tail of ionized particles and ablated material as they plummeted obliquely through the upper atmosphere. The ultimate blackness of space was gone, replaced by a wispy tunnel of colors, subtle lavenders, light blue-greens, little touches of violet, surrounding a central core of orange-yellow, and surrounded, in turn, by the black void. To Collins, it was very much like a Gemini re-entry, except that he didn't see any tiny pieces of heat shield whizzing by, or any other pinpoints of light, only the diffused colors. The radio was silent now, and it would be for four minutes or so, since the ionized sheath prevented the passage of radio signals. Collins had one eye on his navigational instruments and the other out the window. Buzz was taking pictures of Columbia's tail and Neil was keeping Collins informed of the numbers that the computer was displaying in a steady stream. They were right on target and then they breathed an extra sigh of relief when the velocity dropped below satellite speed. In other words, Columbia no longer had enough energy left to skip back out of the atmosphere. They were completely recaptured by Earth's gravity and they were now guaranteed to come down somewhere on its surface. Now the G-forces were squashing the astronauts, feeling like a heavy hand on the chest, but 6.5 G's was not bad, even after eight days of no G at all, and it didn't last long. The view out of the window was breathtaking. The intensity of illumination had increased dramatically, flooding the cockpit with white light of a startling purity. The fiery trail had extended to the extent that its edges could no longer be seen. Instead, they seemed to be in the center of a gigantic electric light bulb, a million watts worth at least, flooding the entire Pacific Basin with light. Then Buzz announced the two drogue chutes had deployed. Collins had been busy with his instruments and had not noticed the activation of the two 16-foot drogue parachutes, The two chutes stabilized Columbia enough to allow safe deployment and inflation of the three main parachutes. The crew felt a small jerk. What a sight to behold. Huge orange and white blobs, each 80 feet in diameter, bundled together in a reassuring triad. They could have survived a water landing with only two good ones, but three was so much better. If the chutes had failed to open on time, the capsule would have hit the ocean too hard. If they landed too far off course, they could possibly sink before the recovery ship reached them. The timing was highly critical, with the precision that they aimed for throughout the Apollo program. The parachutes opened at exactly the right moment. As they neared the water, extremely quick action was required by Buzz and Mike to prevent the 18-knot winds from dragging the parachute sideways and pulling the capsule over in the process. At the instant of touchdown, Buzz needed to push in a circuit breaker below his right elbow, and then Mike was to throw a switch to jettison the parachute. For this to work, they had to wait until the instant the capsule hit the water. As they descended, Buzz and Mike discussed it, and Buzz placed his finger on the appropriate button as the instant of contact approached. Then splash! Even with the breaking power of the parachutes, they hit the water with such force that Buzz's hand was ripped away from the circuit breaker. Mike pulled the switch to release the parachutes, but without the power flowing through the circuit breaker, nothing happened. Buzz scrambled to pull himself up and push the circuit breaker in, and Mike threw his switch to jettison the parachutes, but it was too late. The capsule was upside down in the water. Now it would take an extra ten minutes or so to pump up the small airbags on the sunken nose. When they were filled, they would change the center of gravity enough to bring the capsule upright again. In the meantime, they were in a topsy-turvy little world. Not only had gravity returned with its unaccustomed heaviness, but it was pulling them in the wrong direction. They were hanging by their straps, with their couches behind and above them, and the main instrument panel was down below instead of up over their heads. It would have been worse if they had their pressure suits on, for their bulk would have made it impossible to move around, and their super insulation would have overheated them because the air conditioning system was no longer effective. Finally, the capsule rolled over. But they were still being tossed around, bobbing in the sea for several minutes, so all three took another motion sickness pill, not because they felt sick, but because of the dreadful implications of getting sick later inside the biological isolation garment and either strangling on their own vomit or breaking the germ barrier. Soon a helicopter came over and dropped a diver, then a life raft, and then more Navy divers to help the crew out of the scorched command module. Then they opened the side hatch briefly and Lieutenant Clancy Haddleberg who had been trained as the crew's decontamination assistant, threw three biological isolation garments into them. They closed the hatch again and set about putting them on. The divers were protected as well. In their fully masked and sealed suits, one by one, Neil, Mike, and Buzz were lifted from the raft into the hovering helicopter to transfer to a waiting ship. That was the re-entry and splashdown from the astronaut's point of view. Now, here is the re-entry and splashdown from the spectator's viewpoint.
1: And at this point, both speeds and heats on the spacecraft are beginning to build up. 800 nautical miles high, velocity
2: 33,000 feet per second.
1: They're around seven minutes away from reaching 400,000 feet above the Earth. The really critical point of this re-entry, where they encounter maximum speeds and maximum aerodynamic forces and heating Guidance reports Apollo 11 right down the middle of the corridor. Seven minutes away from entry. And from all those signs, it looks like Apollo 11 will be... a record-setting closeness, have a record-setting closeness to the Hornet. The actual landing zone, Apollo 11 handed, heading for about 950 miles southwest of Hawaii. Where the Hornet... 38,000 ton carrier a tired veteran of World War II built in 1942 is standing by on station to pick them up. Uh, uh, I'll down
3: here at uh, latitude 13 30 69 that's uh I want to withdraw
1: this is Neil Armstrong talking directly to the Hornets' flag plot room, telling exactly where he's been to land, a most unusual event. And they are very close to being on the money. We're trying to plot the coordinates Neil was reading off his computer on our one of our charts here. But it looks quite close to the nominal landing the area. Hornets report spacecraft right on target point. Okay, Lionel, following the
3: All
1: Now about 58 seconds away from landing. 3150, 11 descending through about through clouds at about 2000 feet.
2: Neil Armstrong giving the position reports. I have
3: a visual. uh, the battle mount. Uh, Good morning, Roger. the Roger. 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 Roger.
1: Here is the president, of course, watching from his vantage point. Some five decks up on the carrier, standing there with the various VIPs. The men on the Hornet, some 2,200 of them. The crew, they were up as early as 2 o'clock this morning, getting everything ship-shaped. Final preparations for the president, Secretary of State Rogers admiral mccain commander of all the u.s. forces in the pacific all here to observe this historic moment uh... we're now getting word from the swim helicopters the rescue helicopters that the crew is in excellent condition let's go to them now and see if we can pick up some direct radio communication The ship is uh... two and a quarter miles from the spacecraft now and the spacecraft uh... pretty clear now in the picture the uh big swimmer, Lieutenant Hattelberg, is using hand signals to uh, communicate with the uh, astronauts inside their spacecraft. He does have a little plastic board with him and a grease pencil, which he can write on and flash messages to them that way. Actually, Ron, not much communication is needed between the astronauts. The hatch is now open. We have word uh, from the scene from the recovery helicopter. And the first astronaut is coming out. That would be Buzz Aldrin, wouldn't it, uh, Dennis? I believe so, yes. Band on the deck strikes up. Let's listen to that band, as they say.
2: Presidents applauding as they play Columbia, the gem of the ocean.
1: Columbia, of course, is... uh module out there. There goes the first astronaut, uh, up in the billy net. up in the billy unit Forty feet from the sea to the helicopter door. They have instructions in the helicopter, the two crew members in back, uh, not to touch the astronaut. Dr. Carpentier will, uh, will help the astronaut out of his uh, net. I understand that President Nixon uh, requested that the band the play Columbia to leave the flight deck. Written on the bottom of the helicopter is another welcome aboard for the astronauts. It says, Hail, Columbia.
0: Salutations from the Buckeye State. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode 229 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 11 Reentry and Splashdown. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you, a very fulfilling episode. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage spacerockethistory.com. In case you haven't heard, there is a new RSS feed for the first 20 episodes of the podcast. You can find it on the homepage on the right side of the page. This means that the first 20 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Today, we salute my Patreon donors. Patreon donors give a small amount monthly to support the podcast. I want to thank Patreon donors who honor their pledge this month. Okay, I had several afterthoughts about this week's episode. Wasn't that an amazing mission? I would say... That was NASA's highest point, with one possible exception. But really, I believe this was the highest point. And perhaps it was mankind's greatest adventure, and certainly in my mind, it was the greatest technological achievement ever. It's times like these, I like to think back on how we got to this point. And I thought it would be appropriate to play a few excerpts from President Kennedy's moon speech to Congress.
4: Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. But the facts of the matter are that we have never made the national decisions or marshaled the national resources required for such leadership. We have never specified long-range goals on an urgent time schedule or managed our resources and our time so as to ensure their fulfillment. Recognizing the head start obtained by the Soviets... With their large rocket engines, which gives them many months of lead time, and recognizing the likelihood that they will exploit this lead for some time to come in still more impressive successes, we nevertheless are required to make new efforts on our own. For while we cannot guarantee that we shall one day be first, we can guarantee that any failure to make this effort will make us lost when we are successful. But this is not merely a race. Space is open to us now, and our eagerness to share its meaning is not governed by the efforts of others. We go into space, because whatever mankind must undertake, free men must fully share. I therefore ask the Congress, above and beyond the increases I have earlier requested for space activities, We propose to accelerate the development of the appropriate lunar spacecraft. We propose to develop alternate liquid and solid fuel boosters, much larger than any now being developed, until certain which is superior. We propose additional funds for other engine development and for unmanned exploration. Explorations which are particularly important for one purpose which this nation will never overlook, The survival of the man who first makes this daring flight but in a very real sense it will not be one man going to the moon we make this judgment affirmatively it will be an entire nation
0: and i also have a couple of clips of the speech he made at rice university
4: but create new ills as it dispels old new ignorance new problems new dangers William Bradford, speaking in 1630 of the founding of the Plymouth Bay Colony, said that all great and honorable actions are accompanied with great difficulty, and both must be enterprised and overcome with answerable courage. If this capsule history of our progress teaches us anything, it is that man in his quest for knowledge and progress is determined and cannot be deterred. The exploration of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask. Why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too.
0: Rest in peace, President Kennedy. The goal was achieved July 24th, 1969. I wish you could have seen it. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. I was very pleased to receive several new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Igor P. donated at the Mir ISS level, and since he donated last year, he earned the coveted Rocket Emoji. Kevin H. donated at the Salyut Skylab level. Patrick H. from Illinois donated at the Apollo level. Thomas P. from the UK donated at the Vostok level. Robert M. from Texas made another donation this year and was promoted to the Mir ISS level. And Rodolfo M. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. We lost one Patreon over the past week, but we gained one, so our number of Patreons is still at 139, 11 short of the goal of reaching 150 by the end of the year. And our overall donor total for this year is 271, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Now, for those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the Space Rocket History Podcast. Now, for those of you who have already donated in 2017, I certainly appreciate it, and I have an item to give away this week, and it is... The NASA 3 and one-half inch in diameter meatball sticker. To select the winner, I gave each don- donor a number and I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number for Mark Lewis. Mark, if you would uh, email me your address, mike at spacerockethistory.com. Tell me your address and I will mail this out to you. And I have several more of these stickers, so we'll have a drawing next week for the 2017 donors as well. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. This is the end of content for this episode, and you're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will cover the recovery... President Nixon and the quarantine of Apollo 11. We are still traveling this week and we had the opportunity to visit the National Museum of the United States Air Force in Dayton, Ohio. Now that was an awesome museum and the admission was free, so you can't beat the price. The museum is housed in four buildings plus they have an outside air park now, the buildings look like aircraft hangars, and they are pretty big. The first building is called the Early Years, and it covers early military flight through World War II. Now, in this building, and it took a while to see it all, I tell you, if you slow down, read the placards, and look at everything, it takes a while. I particularly enjoyed the observation balloon, and they had that up in the ceiling. And the German World War II aircraft, I love looking at those. And it, they had the jet and that little rocket plane. They worked on it toward the end of the war. And even better, they had the V-1 and the V-2. They had a V-2 there. It was fantastic. Now, <laughs> I get excited about this stuff because I like it so much. So you understand that. The second building was the Korean and Southeast Asia War Gallery. Now, in that section, I particularly enjoyed the B-52, the F-22, and they had this uh, stealth bird of prey, and the MiGs, so that was a good one too. Now, the third building is called the Cold War Gallery. Now... I got about halfway through this building and decided that it was going to take at least two days to see all the stuff. So, uh, I'm going to go back and see the rest <laughs> in building three and four, but it looked really good. Now, I didn't get to building four, of course, but its it was called the Research and Development Area, and it included missiles, and it had a presidential gallery, too. So, this museum is an absolute must-see. Do not miss it. There's only one complaint I have in the whole thing, and that was some areas. It was too dark to read the placards that they have in each bus. In each display, they have a placard that describes it, and I think some of the lights were out or something. But it was just, it got really dark in parts of it, and it's hard to read when it's so dark. But that's the only complaint I got. This thing was outstanding. You need to go to see that one. Last week, we also had the opportunity to visit the John and Annie Glenn Museum. Now, this was the house John grew up in, and it was in New Concord, Ohio, and it cost 6 or $7, depending upon your age, to visit. Now, this was a nice little museum, and they had a volunteer who portrayed John Glenn's mother in about 1962, I think it was. So... As you tour the house, she takes you around and she acts like she's John Glenn's mother and explains everything from his his mother's point of view. So that would, I enjoyed that. That was very good. So I recommend this one too. It probably won't take that long to see this one. Maybe an hour or an hour and a half. But it's worth the visit. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 230 ready by next Thursday. So long for now.